Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Freeberg, Executive Director of EdSource. I'm John Fensterwald, Editor-at-Large at EdSource. Well, John, don't have to remind you, it is election time. California June 5th primary is now just 10 days away. This week, EdSource held a forum with the two leading candidates for State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Thurmond and Marshall Tuck. And we thought we'd spend most of this week's podcast looking at some of what they said. We'll also bring you an audio report from a school district in a small desert town on the California-Arizona border. But, John, let's begin with the Marshall Tuck and Tony Thurman discussion. And, by the way, for those of you listening, you can actually go and hear the whole discussion on our website at edsource.org. One of the things that surprised me was the extent to which the candidates actually agreed on multiple issues. That's absolutely true. But then again, both candidates agree that the local control funding formula has worked fairly well, needs some changes perhaps, and both of them are uh, in favor of the standards that were adopted in California. Both of them believe in equity, and that should be the priority would be to focus on achievement of low-performing students. So, you know, as they start off with that basic agreement, both are actually Democrats, though it's a nonpartisan race. The other thing we found, which of course we knew, is that both are smart, articulate, and basically agreeable guys. Although there was a back and forth there. Tony Thurman suggested that Marshall Tuck was allied in some fashion to Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump, or that his support, some of his supporters definitely are allies of Betsy DeVos. That's their response to the millions of dollars that are being spent by independent expenditure groups. And, of course, Marshall Tuck had a response for that, which is, "Eh, that's what I expect from a politician to say this kind of thing. So the discussion was actually quite lively. One of the issues that did come up was what California could do or what the state superintendent of public instruction should do to ensure that more experienced teachers are teaching in the lowest performing schools. That's right. And both of them said this was a high priority for them and should be for the state. Let's hear from Marshall Tuck first. The promise of public education has to be for all kids, every kid, every neighborhood in the state of California. And right now, as you mentioned, for high poverty kids, mostly Latino African American students, they have younger teachers that turn over more often, less experienced principals that turn over more often. And if we want quality education for all kids, we have to get sustained, high-quality teaching school leadership for all of our kids. Uh, The schools that I led, we paid principals more to come work in Watts in East LA and South LA because they're harder jobs. And you can make more in Watts than you could in the wealthier parts of Los Angeles. We have to do that across the board for higher poverty kids. Tony Thurman gave a broader answer about the need for training for all teachers. You know, the way we do professional development in this state has really been mind-boggling to me. Typically, a district will send one teacher representative from a school to a training and then that teacher is expected to come back and do a turnaround training for everyone else on their own time. I think that really sets us up to have a bad result and we should be providing upfront professional development for every single educator, especially our new teachers. New teachers should get support around classroom management, they should get great mentoring from senior teachers. This year I've introduced legislation that will provide just that, mentorship and coaching, especially to teachers in one of our toughest areas, special education. Most of our teachers will tell you that they're burned out, they feel like they don't get support, um, the conditions are very difficult, and so we've got to provide mentoring and coaching 
to our teachers uh, from the time that they start. I was intrigued that both of the candidates felt that teachers need to get paid more, substantially more. Marshall Tuck thought that teachers are working in schools where kids are not performing up to the level that we would like should get paid more. Yes, that's one of his themes that he's talked about, which is to say make sure all the money that's targeted under the local control funding formula goes to those schools, and one of the things it could be used for would be incentive pay. Tony Thurman did not agree. He felt that we shouldn't have this two-tiered system of payment to teachers. That's right. Marshall Tuck's view is that if you're ever going to close the achievement gap, that's one of the key ingredients. Now, one of the areas where there was some disagreement was around charter schools. This has become a big issue in the campaign, not only this campaign, but also the gubernatorial campaign. And in some ways, it's being portrayed as a pro-charter versus anti-charter campaign because of the contributions that are going into each of the candidates' campaign coffers. That's right. A lot of so-called pro-charter money going into Marshall Tuck's campaign, but actually to these independent expenditure committees that he has no control over. And similarly, on the so-called anti-charter side, a lot of money going into Tony Thurman's campaign coffers from teachers' unions who have been very critical of charter schools. But as we discovered in this discussion, you can't really portray this as pro-charter versus anti-charter, because actually Tony Thurman, he believes in charter schools, and... Marshall Tuck, by contrast, he ran, a charter. He he ran, ran charter. charter schools, but he doesn't think that every charter school, he doesn't think that all kids should be in charter schools, and uh, he says we have to focus on where the majority of kids That's right. Tony attend. Thurman was a school board member who, in fact, said he approved several charter applications. When he was a school board member in West Contra Costa County. That's right. right. And he spoke favorably about some charter schools in his district. This, this is going to be a key issue, though, as Governor Brown retires next year. He's been a great protector of charter schools. So we did go into this issue in depth because there could be serious proposals to amend the charter law to weaken some of the protections that charter schools have had. And that's one of the things we explored with them because there are distinctions that may be the reason why there are millions of dollars into this race. We did ask them whether they supported a moratorium on charter schools. And in both cases, not a clear-cut answer. But let's hear from Tony Thurmond first. I have been very public in saying I don't think that we should open any new schools without providing new resources to support that school. I think the way things are now, and the data shows this, that for every school that opens without new resources, there is an impact on the schools in the district that that charter will be will be based in. Um, And so I think that we should be having a different conversation. Maybe the conversation is more of a pause than a moratorium to give us a chance to figure out how we can open new schools and provide the resources for that school in a way that don't necessarily have to impact or undermine another school. I do wonder what the difference between a pause and a moratorium is. (laughs) And uh, we didn't get that much clarity. Could be the length of time that we didn't get into. And also, just just to make sure we're clear on this, Thurman, Tony Thurman, didn't actually call for a pause. He said he'd consider a pause or thought it might be a good idea to consider. But uh, let's hear what Marshall Tuck had to say about the idea of a moratorium on charter school growth in California. I don't support a, a blanket moratorium on charter schools because that would be taking 
an important tool out of the toolkit to deliver on what is our responsibility to parents, which is a quality public school for all, all kids. I think about, I live in Los Angeles, uh, KIPP Los Angeles, their elementary schools serving all high poverty kids outperform 93% of elementary schools in the state of California, and they're serving almost all high poverty kids. If they want to open another couple elementary schools, let's let that happen, because I'm pretty confident parents want to go to that school. Marshall Tuck also did say, and I thought this was interesting, that he felt that in districts that have a lot of charter schools, like Oakland and Los Angeles, that maybe they should be getting some extra money, at least initially, to deal with the financial impact. That's right. Sort of similar to what Tony Thurman was talking about in conceptually, but the problem, I think, with the moratorium is we've heard proposals for moratoriums called for different reasons other than this. And just to clarify, the California Teachers Association, which is strongly backing Tony Thurmond, putting a lot of money into his campaign, hasn't actually officially called for a moratorium. And they make that point quite strongly. Yeah, it's, I believe it's the California NAACP that has been pushing it. And the National Education Association nationally called for a moratorium, but not in California. That's right. So... We couldn't avoid dealing with the issue of school safety in light of the gun massacres that have occurred this year in schools in Parkland, Florida, earlier this year, and this month in Santa Fe, Texas. And we asked both Tuck and Thurmond what the state should be doing to ensure school safety. Let's start with Marshall Tuck. Right now in this state, you, you not only have seen across this nation school shootings, but suicides are up at the highest rate they've been up. And, and we gotta ask ourselves this question, like why are young people in such a state where they're taking their own lives at the highest rate and they're also having these mass shootings? And, and why aren't we addressing these issues much earlier? Tony Thurman, just like Marshall Tuck, also called for more mental health services, something you would expect from somebody who's a former social worker. You know, the president has called for arming all of our teachers with guns. That's exactly the wrong thing to do. Our teachers don't need guns, they need resources educate our kids and need elected officials who will support real gun control policies to keep guns out of our schools. And, you know, just recently we voted to make a stronger restraining order program that makes it possible for educators to report someone who they think might be at risk for bringing a gun uh, into a school. John, you know, one of the challenges in trying to assess where things stand in the race is that there really haven't been any recent polls on this race. I guess the pollsters don't see this as important enough to poll on. We are actually going to try to do some polls if this race goes to a runoff. But right now, we really don't know which one of the two are front runners. That's right. And each would have to get more than 50% in order for this to be the final election. Otherwise, they'll continue through November. And we'll be hearing a lot from both of them. And we threaten to bring them back for another session. Well, enough of politics for this week, at least. We did want to go to an actual school district and to bring you the second of a podcast series being produced by Anna Tentakalis for the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence called the California School Field Trip. This time, Anna went to a school district most of you have probably never heard of. Palo Verde Unified School District. That's not Palos Verdes, which is a much more affluent district. Palo Verde Unified is a small district on the California-Arizona border. It has about 3,000 students. And uh, this is Anna's report. Blythe, California. 
Ever heard of it? Well, I must confess I didn't until I actually made the drive out there myself. This is uh, way out in the California desert. I passed Palm Springs about two hours ago, and now it seems like I am approaching the state line where the California border meets Arizona. Blythe is your last stop before Phoenix, and this town is small and isolated. So why the heck am I here? Well, there's been an awakening of sorts in this community. Not a spiritual awakening or anything like that. This is a story about what happens when educators come together and see data in a whole new way. And it really opens your mind. It opens your mind. It opens your mind to see what the real problem is and what the possible solutions could be. That's Karina de la Peña, principal of Appleby Elementary School in the Palo Verde Unified School District, the only school district in Blythe. Before we get to her part of the story, you have to understand what this community has been through. For nearly two decades, almost a quarter of a century, Palo Verde Unified has been one of the lowest performing school districts in the state. It's been through all types of state and federal academic interventions. I think people had kind of lost hope that there was anything that would make any difference. I think they didn't believe anybody would come here that cared. That's Chuck Bush, Palo Verde Unified's superintendent. He arrived on the scene about two years ago. Bush saw an opportunity, a chance to rebuild a district from the ground up. Someone helping him along in this process is Aida Molina, the Director of Education for the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence. One of the things the superintendent said to us is, I really want to become a data-driven culture. I want to ensure that our entire community understands that we will use data to inform our practice. Molina says using data in meaningful ways can truly help districts improve. But creating a data-driven school culture was not going to be easy because that meant principals and teachers had to go back to school themselves. They attended trainings, read books, and spent an entire year just learning how to read student performance data and how to dig deeper for even more insight. De La Peña, the principal of Appleby Elementary, says educators weren't used to spending all this time learning new skills. And I have to say that the beauty of this process is that everybody is investing into solving the problem because it belongs to us. So now let's head to De La Peña's school, Appleby Elementary, to find out how this data awakening is unfolding at her campus. I've been here about 24 years. I think this is my 24th year. That's Brenda Reimer, a second grade teacher at Appleby. I've only taught at this school. So she's seen reforms come and go. But Reimer says teachers coming together to really understand and read data was something different. For years, we've looked at data and, and we've, we've thought we were doing stuff with it or we've looked at data and... Other people have looked at it and nothing ever comes of it. Reimer tells me she trusts this process because it is helping her most vulnerable students, one in particular this year. His parents were in tears at conference time because they were so thrilled with his progress. 
it feels great. I mean, my eyes are tearing up because I'm thinking of it. But yeah, he just stands right out. The entire staff at this school has since rallied around data. They've also created a professional learning community or PLC for short, which brings all of Applebee's teachers under one roof on a regular basis. They present their data, share strategies, and ask for help. That was an extremely hard adjustment for me. I take things very personally. First grade teacher, Alicia Fletcher. When we first presented data and my students were doing terrible, I wanted to cry. I did cry. I just thought I had failed them. I just failed all these students. But instead of judgment, her colleagues embraced her and each other with open arms. She and other teachers were even more surprised when the district received its California school dashboard data late last year. To find out whether Palo Verde Unified is beginning to make real gains, tune into the full version of this episode. You can do that by subscribing to the California School Field Trip, wherever you get your podcasts. That was Anna Tatakoulis from the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence. Just to give you an idea, progress is being made in Palo Verde, but uh, still a long way to go. Underscoring the fact that there are no simple solutions or magic bullets to turn around a struggling district. And that just about wraps it up for this week in California education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm John Fensterwald. And I'm Lewis Friedberg. Thanks to our sponsor, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. Thanks to all of you for listening, and see you next week.